Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Solutions Watch. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in October of 2023 with a little bit of literary whiplash, because reader uh, listeners of the Corbett Report will recall that last week I was chatting with uh, Dr. Daniela Ganser about his books going deep diving into Operation Gladio and the functioning of the American Empire and some of the things that it's been involved in, Gulf of Tonkin and others around the world. Well, this week here on Solutions Watch, we're going to be covering similar topics and similar events, but from a very different literary perspective, this time not an academic or uh, scholarly treatise of any sorts. We're going to look at something from the other end of the learning spectrum. And this is a question, as I as I have had pains to note uh, several times on the Social Solutions Watch podcast over the years, this is a question I get a lot. How do I introduce this material in an age-appropriate way to my children. Well, here's an idea for you. It is called The Tuttle Twins Guide to True Conspiracies. And it is by not one, not two, but three-time Solutions Watch guest, Connor Boyack, who I will assume is now familiar to the regular audience. For the rest of you, of course, I will put in the link to TuttleTwins.com so that you can go and check out the Tuttle Twins books that I have talked about here with Connor in the past, but here we're going to be talking about the latest edition of the Tuttle Twins series, this time the Tuttle Twins Guide to True Conspiracies. So let's bring him on the program. Connor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, James. I'm excited. So am I. And uh, this is an interesting book in so many different ways. But rather than me pre-talking it, why don't I give you a chance to introduce it to the audience? What is this book? What prompted you to create it? What are you seeking to do with it? So The Tuttle Twins Guide to True Conspiracies is a hardback book of 200 plus pages where we share 20 stories of not conspiracy theories, but true, verified, documented conspiracies that are indisputable. Uh, this is for a teen audience. This is part of our guidebook series. So this is, I believe, our fifth or, or our sixth uh, guidebook. We have guidebooks on logical fallacies, on courageous heroes. Um, so this is a, a nonfiction book for a teen audience where, uh, as I said, we list 20 examples, but in each of them, oops, I um, <clears throat> Elijah, who's our illustrator for all the books, he illustrates. So like here's, as an example, social media manipulation. And so we can see kind of the algorithm, you know, unfairly uh, manipulating things. Here's Operation uh, Popeye, says uh, leave climate change to us professionals. <laughs> um, and so we use Elijah's fun illustrations as a way to introduce these ideas. And then I explain them simply with a bit of story, a bit of background, a little bit of intrigue to kind of say what was going on and um, and then introduce, you know, the the real conspiracy of what happened. Often, typically, they're government conspiracies. Sometimes they're corporate, uh, you know, private companies as well. But mostly these are bad actors in the government trying to deceive people in order to gain more power over them. Excellent and succinctly put. So let's take a look at uh, the content of the book, because as you alluded to there, this is not conspiracy theorizing. This is conspiracy fact, a documentable history. So for people who uh, just want to take a look at what this book covers, Nayura in the Iraq War, Operation Mockingbird, Operation Paperclip, Gulf of Tonkin, Operation Sea Spray, Project MKUltra, the Tuskegee Experiment, Operation Fast and Furious, Operation Popeye, Operation Northwoods, Sugar and Fat Studies, The Great Reset, Operation Ajax, Social Media Manipulation, Poisoned Booze, 
Unconstitutional Surveillance, COINTELPRO, Hunter Biden's Laptop, A New Pearl Harbor, and The Creature from Jekyll Island. It, obviously, for regular viewers of The Corporate Report, not a single one of those will be brand new, I would assume, because I have talked about all of them in the past. But this, as you say, is put in an age-appropriate way and context that really does put it as simply and straightforwardly as possible. So tell us about your thinking process behind choosing those particular 20 chapters. Well, I mean, this could have been a longer book with many more examples. And so we we decided on 20 for the length of the book. Um, and, you know, there were things not included here. I'll, I'll give an example, you know, like the JFK assassination. I think that there was foul play, that it was the intelligence community. Um, and there's been increasing new revelations about that and also stonewalling to release the documentation that the government is legally, you know, bound to, to do. That's super fishy to me. That seems extremely plausible that the government was involved. We just don't yet have the document, the the declassified, you know, smoking gun to say, aha, here you go. So again, our desire here was was to not have a book where it's like, oh, okay, you Alex Jones people are coming up with your crazy ideas again. I wanted to create a rock solid treatise for teens, again, for, for a teen audience, that was indisputable, that no one can say these didn't exist or, oh, that's just your claim. We wanted things that actually had documentation. Um, and so the, the, the fun thing about Tuttle Twins, I'll, I'll, let's pick on Creature from Jekyll Island. G. Edward Griffin's a fan. I'm a fan of his. We're, we're mutual fans. Uh, uh, his book, Creature from Jekyll Island, very well read, very important to read. That's a thick book. And he does, he writes well with kind of storytelling and makes it interesting to read, not just a dense scholarly treatise, as you were mentioning uh, before. Uh, so it's an enjoyable read, but it's a big one. So if you go to the, the guy on the street and say, hey, you should read this book, I think chances are probably low that, you know, he'll actually go home and do that. If you give him a book that says, hey, do you think your kids should learn critical thinking, should learn about what the government's done, what they're, you know, and uh, I think chances are high that they take a book like this that's illustrated, it's got simple stories. And what happens is the adults themselves are now gaining access to that information in a more simplified form. I got a text just an hour ago from a lady saying, oh, I bought your book for my son, but I caught my husband uh, reading it because he intercepted the mail. So, so the goal here is let's broaden the tent of the number of people who might find these stories interesting and make it accessible to them so we can say, look, trust us, this is, in fact, at the end of every chapter, we include a document of some kind that corroborates what we're talking about to point people to uh, where they can see the actual information or the revelations about what, what has happened. So I don't want to say trust us to correct what I said a moment ago. I wanna say, look, this is a good synopsis and a simple summary. Let's send you on your own intellectual journey with these resources where you can go learn more and verify if you'd like to. Excellent. Well, let's take a look at the uh, the format and the structure that you've used um, in these chapters. As you say, it, uh, each one opens with an illustration by Elijah that um, really puts the, uh, the the context in a in a simple and visual form for people to understand. And uh, for example, I particularly like the uh, the depiction of Operation Mockingbird of the CIA agent holding the CNN puppet essentially and telling him what to say. Beautiful, very succinct, and very easy to understand image. And then there's a, a short opening. 
um, sort of scene setter, as it were. And uh, then there is a section on things aren't always what they seem, in which you start to question and bring questions into that official narrative. And then you ask the question, cui bono? Of course, an important question to ask in any investigation, and probably some good words for teenagers to be learning about. And then why does this matter? Along with some what we learned summary in the end, and as you say, some sort of document at the end. Um, tell us about that format and how you came up with that idea. So the idea at the beginning of a lot of these chapters is we set the stage in a way that might relate to what Americans were led to believe. For example, in the Tuskegee experiment, all these poor black people with syphilis that was left intentionally untreated by the government that wanted to study uh, uh, what was hap- what would happen to people who had untreated syphilis. So we opened the stories often by saying, oh, there were all these sick people and they had what was called bad blood and these hardworking government officials were trying to provide health, but a bunch of people died and how sad, you know? So we, we kind of falsely set up the narrative that often pertains to what people were led to believe at the time. And then we say, oh, things aren't always as they seem. We're, we're, we, we transition into the aha, the reveal, because we want readers to understand there's often a false portrayal of what's happening, so-called misinformation and disinformation of which the government is the greatest purveyor. Uh, and so there's all these deceptions swirling around. And so you need to start to learn and, and flex that intellectual muscle of skepticism skepticism to realize that things aren't always as they seem. So we'll we'll set up this straw man, if you will, this this kind of fake narrative of what was claimed to have happened. And then we, you know, burn it to the ground by saying, here's what actually happened. Here's the reveal. Um, and then qui bono, I mean, that's, that's, as you point out, that's super important because there, these actors, these people who were involved in these conspiracies were motivated. Like we're all motivated by something. Humans respond to incentives. And so what are the incentives or what were the incentives at the time that led these people to act as they do? Who were the beneficiaries of these actions. Typically, it was, you know, government or large corporations amassing power and and money, wealth, control. Um, and so we, we thought that that was really important. The, the section called Why Does This Matter? I thought that was particularly important because a lot of these conspiracies that are documented are decades old. Because, I mean, think of MKUltra. We should have never found out about MKUltra. It's just that in another warehouse, there was a filing cabinet in an office building with some random, like, 1% of the documents because the CIA director had ordered the destruction of all the documents and they missed out on this little sliver uh, that survived. And that's what little we know about MKUltra today. So a lot of these are decades old that through investigative journalism or declassification of of uh, official oper- uh, like memos of, of operations and so forth. We've learned about these later. What I didn't want, especially young people to have as a takeaway is, oh yeah, man, the, the 50s and 60s, crazy time. I mean, MK Ultra, are you kidding me? But you know, things are different today. We're more sophisticated. We're more modern. Uh, social media, there's more transparency of what bad people are, you know, I didn't want people to to draw that inference. So yes, we included a couple modern things like Hunter Biden's laptop, very recent examples of intelligence agencies doing a bunch of shenanigans and, and conspiring together. But uh, in order to deter that sentiment or that inference, 
from a lot of these stories being decades old, we wanted that section in each book to say, why does this matter today? What are modern examples that this relates to? Oh yeah, Operation you know, Mockingbird happening a long time, but you don't think that the media today is similarly being influenced, if not controlled, you know, by the government and the intelligence community. So I wanted to make very clear to the readers, yeah, a lot of this stuff you're reading about happened a long time ago, but give me a break. Here's some examples of like how it's happening today as well. Absolutely, some important context to uh, to leave the uh, the reader with there. Um, all right, as I say, it covers a, a wide range of material, and as a communicator of sorts myself, I can certainly appreciate with the struggle of trying to take sometimes quite complex and dense subject matter and condense it down in a way that's clear and concise and readable and understandable and enjoyable, even, but also doesn't quite miss out the the depth of the, the story, etc. And that's difficult enough to do for an adult audience. It's even that much more difficult, I imagine, to do to condense it down to a few pages in uh, a teenage-appropriate book. So um, tell us a little bit about that struggle. Were there any particular chapters that were more difficult to write than others, or was there any subject matter that you, you felt was really a difficult uh, job to summarize down? Well, when, when I announced to my friends and others that I was working on this book, we started like two years ago on this particular book. As you can imagine, one of the questions I was most frequently asked was, oh, are you including a chapter on 9-11? And depending on the individual asking the question, they were either going to dismiss the entire book if I did include such a chapter, or others were going to say, well, how can you not include a chapter based on 9-11? So that one was interesting because, again, like, was there thermite planted in the towers? Was Osama bin Laden a CIA patsy? You know, were the Israelis dancing? What did the guy say? You know, Larry Silverstein, pull it. And because he had an insurance policy that weeks prior he put on, you know, a lot of these things that like, I'll say still are kind of theories because there's, you know, counterpoints and counter arguments and it's not really like uh, so decisive that it's indisputable. Right. Uh, but I wanted to include something like that. So here I'm struggling like this is a book called True Conspiracies. Um, and, and, and I need to have integrity to make sure that all of the all of the claims I'm making about what happened in each of these events are rock solid. I don't want you know any of my sources to be questionable. I don't want any of this information to be wrong because here I am producing a book called True Conspiracies. So what we decided to do as an example with the 9-11 chapter, which I titled A New Pearl Harbor, as you can imagine just from the title, is to sidestep the question of, you know, again, was did the government plant the explosives or people, elements within the government that, that knew and so forth. Um, instead, I wanted to point out, you know what is indisputable? That one year prior to 9-11, you had a bunch of neocons form the Project for a New American Century, which issued one white paper called something like Rebuilding America's Defenses, in which they say that we need to project military strength across the world, especially in the Middle East. We need to build up our military after, you know, Clinton and others have, you know, supposedly shrunk it. And none of this is going to happen. This military might and build up. It's not going to happen unless we were to have a new Pearl Harbor to galvanize, you know, American sentiment. And, and of course, one year later, we have it. I'm not alleging in the book that those individuals, I, I don't need to allege that they had any particular role in, in planning it, 
or being aware that that it was happening and then just sitting back and, and letting it happen because it was politically useful. We don't even need to uh, accept uh, or agree with any of that. We can, however, point out that there was a conspiracy to exploit the 9-11 tax uh, by these very same neocons who became part of the Bush administration. And immediately after 9-11, what did they start doing? They start using the term Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, trying to, in the media, draw those connections and get people riled up so that, oh, look, we went to war last time, you know, uh, in, in vengeance and justice uh, because of this attack. That's what we need to do this time. That, to me, is a very clear conspiracy. I do point out, for example, that the 9-11 Commission chair and vice chair repudiate their own report no longer stand by it, say that we were they were lied to repeatedly. The chair at one point, I point out in the book, uh, was surprised years later when he read a news report that the detainees at Gitmo were, uh, the, the, the video evidence of their interrogation was going to be deleted because he had no clue those tapes even existed because the intelligence agencies, in particular the CIA, stonewalled them and would not allow them to be uh, interviewed or, or anything like that. And so uh, there's a lot of stuff there. But again, I kind of sidestep a lot of the, what I'll say is iffy stuff to be able to point out, look, you don't have to believe that there was this massive conspiracy within the government for nine, something like 9-11 to recognize that there was a conspiracy to exploit. Like Rahm Emanuel says, never let a good crisis go to waste. That to me is still a conspiracy and one where we can point to 9-11 as the genesis of many problems, even if you don't need to accept the idea that there were elements in the government involved in planning it or allowing it to happen. And then going with the uh, the format of ending with the document, well, then you already have a document there, Rebuilding America's Defenses, that you can quote from directly. So there you go. It's a, a very direct approach to that. As you say, I can imagine that was a divisive issue. idea. <laughs> hey, sh are you going to do 9-11? And depending who's asking it, I'm sure. Very different responses. Um, tell us about the process of, of getting this tailored to a teenage audience. Do you have a test audience that you work with with this material or how do you tailor your, what you're writing? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Uh, so my kids right now are 14 and 12. They've long been the guinea pigs uh, for the Teletons books I write. However, in recent years, uh, both of them have started to be like, ah, we'll just wait for the, the final version, you know, and, and surprise us at the end. Fortunately, I do have a lot of, um, I have kind of a community of uh, like a, a test audience, as you say, families who are willing to review early material. Um, and so we definitely uh, utilize that for some of these. They, you know, helped edit and proofread and find any typos. In fact, uh, this this is the author's like worst, uh, worst thing happening. I gave this this book hot off the presses uh, to my executive vice president, Michael, on my team. And he's just casually flipping through. And within 20 seconds, he gets to the new Pearl Harbor chapter. And, and it says right here, um, the events of September 11th, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, okay, we'll fix that in version two. So despite, a, you know, an occasional typo still getting through, <laughs> I do have a group of people who, who help find typos, but also give input on this was confusing, this lacked clarity. Oh, I really like this part. Um, and at this point, I rely on them less than I did early on. Because I've been through it so many times, I've really been able to develop kind of a sense of what works well and what doesn't. 
And that's been fortunate for me to to develop that experience so that I need to, you know, number one, rely less on people like that, but also number two, so I don't have to make substantive edits because something is uh, unclear. It's, um, as you point out, so I've written a number of other nonfiction books for a general audience, writing for kids to make it not only, you know, informative, but also interesting and exciting to read is uh, quite a thing. <laughs> it, it, it takes more mental energy uh, to, well, who was it, like Mark Twain? I think he said something like, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have enough time, uh, right? This idea of like, when you when you really want to simplify and focus, it's going to take a lot of uh, mental energy and effort to do so. Um, but to me, it's super gratifying. Like, it's so worth it because I get these, like, dopamine hits from, Parents, you know, reaching out all the time, telling me what this impact, the impact has had on their family. Uh, I don't know if you saw James a few weeks ago or months, a couple months ago at this point, there was in Colorado, a 12 year old boy who got kicked out of school uh, for having a Gadsden flag, don't tread on me patch on his backpack. And, uh, and that this kid, his name's Jaden. He's been reading our books for years, big Tuttle Twins fan. And so when they were having these problems, the mom reached out to me. I'm the one who broke the story. I posted it, the video that she had recorded the following morning. It's got like 50 million views across social media of this kid getting kicked out because they claimed, uh, this, the vice principal claimed that the Gadsden flag had, quote, origins in slavery and therefore was a disruption to the class environment. Completely false, had nothing to do with slavery at all. Here's a supposedly academic institution that exists to edify and instruct and teach. Totally spewing propaganda. They, anyways, I, I could go off on the tangent. My point here, James, is that J, uh, is that Jaden stood up for himself. He, he would not take the patch off. He refused to comply. He knew about true American history. He knew about free speech. And, and so he wanted to stand up for himself. And so we brought the heat of the internet to, to this school. They bowed down. They had an emergency school board meeting that night. Uh, they walked back what the administration had said. And, and so here's this kid who stood up not only for himself, but when you go into the Google uh, trends, you can search for Gadsden flag and, and searches for it, as you might expect, massively spiked when this happened. So now here's a kid who's not only standing up for himself, but creating this opportunity for all these other people to learn a little bit more about, in this case, American history and maybe go down a rabbit hole and, and learn more themselves. So I'm on a mission with, with books like this one to foster critical thinking and history and create more informed kids like that because yeah it's hard to write like it, it takes a lot of mental energy for me to figure out how do we how do i you know teach this stuff well but what i'm trying to get at is it's so immensely rewarding seeing kids like Jaden or getting these emails from from parents that um that they're having these aha light bulb moments that that families are having meaningful conversations as you point out you get these questions as have i like, how do I talk to my kids about this? How do I introduce age appropriate things? How do I, you know, uh, make sure that they're, you know, red pilled, you know, as they get older and understand how the world actually works, not this like false uh, matrix that we often grow up in. And so that that's the mission. That's the goal. Um, and because I get those dopamine hits and that those those stories and that gratitude uh, from parents every day. It's so motivating for me and our whole team to be like, all right, let's lean into this. Let's create even more resources that are going to make future Jadens. 
Absolutely. I mean, what better testimonial could you ask for than than a story like that? And hats off to the Jadens of the world who are who are n- go- not going to back down to educators who know less about history than they do <laughs> themselves. If only if only we could give the teachers the Tuttle Twins books and tell them. To <laughs> but anyway, um, as you indicate, this is not the first Tuttle Twins guide. This is the sixth. So tell us about this series. So uh, here's here's one that I'll grab i got i think one other one right here in my office so this is the one that came out before it this is the tuttle twins guide to modern villains this one's a little thicker it's like uh, almost 300 pages but every chapter is a different bad dude uh they're all dudes uh there are very few bad uh dudettes in world history um so we got uh, Karl Marx, Woodrow, we had to pick a president. I was like, I want one president on this list. Which one would I do? And I was like, came down to FDR and Wilson. I'm going for Wilson. So we got Woodrow Wilson, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, Hitler, Ho Chi Minh, Tito, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung, Pinochet, Mugabe, Fidel Castro, Mubarak, and a bunch of others. And so you might say, well, why are you teaching kids about all these, you know, horrible people and what they've done. Well, you're familiar, I'm sure, James, with that quote that says, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. What better way to make sure we don't get future modern villains than to learn about the conditions that existed when they rose to power? What was the cultural dynamic like? What was the education of the people, the media? What what was happening in, in that country that allowed for those events to happen? And if we can learn from all these past, you know, examples, then we can hopefully deter modern villains in our own day. So that's the the book that came out before that. We've got a couple books on critical thinking. One is the guide to logical fallacies. The other is the guide to courage, uh, to cognitive biases. And so each chapter uses some fun cartoons to explain, uh, you know, like the Dunning-Kruger effect or uh, the sunk cost fallacy or the straw man fallacy or whatever, and helping kids think more clearly. I issued a warning when we published this book to parents. I said, if you want your kids to be smart, you know, you should get this book, but be aware they will start poking holes in your own flawed arguments when you, when you teach them. Uh, and, and sure enough, I get emails like, Oh, my kid was pointing out that I was using an ad hominem, you know? (laughs) Um, so we've got, uh, finally a book on uh, a guide to inspiring entrepreneurs. Every chapter is a story of a different entrepreneur, what we can learn from their background and the challenges they overcame. Uh, and then finally, we have the guide to courageous heroes, where similar format, every chapter is a different story of a different person. In this case, these are courageous heroes who stood up to tyranny. These are people who you know, stood up for their rights. Uh, think of uh, uh, Sophie, um, uh, oh, now I'm spacing her name, the White Rose uh, Society in the Nazi uh, era, or you've got Helmut Hubener, who was a teenage boy who did the same, or you've got Tank Man, you've got you know, all these examples of people who have stood up, Rosa Parks and, and so forth. Um, and so we wanted to highlight examples basically of civil disobedience uh, and of war resistors and things like that who were really standing up against all odds and when everyone else was... I call it, uh, I got this from my mom, standing up in a sit-down world, uh, right? Everyone around, you've seen that photo of, of uh, the gentleman who's folding his arms at the shipyard and everyone else is doing the Hail Hitler salute. And we all we all think that we would like to be that. Oh, if I was, you know, I, I would be that. But most of us are the 
you know, obedient rule followers. Look at COVID, you know, very few people were willing to not wear a mask uh, publicly and try and fly on a plane, you know, without wearing a mask or things like that. So uh, so that's that book is, is what can we learn from these people and how courageous they were? Why did they stand up? What uh, what examples are there in their earlier childhood that like prepared them for that? And, and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, develop their character, uh, to the point where they could be ready to act much like Jaden, this 12 year old kid. He's been reading books for years and almost in preparation for this opportunity to stand up and, and do something. So all these, these guidebooks, this is uh, one of our two series that we have for teens. They're all nonfiction, uh, age 13 and up. And the ultimate goal here, like we've got toddler books, we've got the our, our elementary age uh, picture books that we're most known for. But as kids continue to get older, I want to make sure that we can continue to educate them and um, give them access to more information in with more depth than we could with our earlier story books that they read when they were eight or nine. And so as our audience continues to age up, we're going to lean into that even more and create more material for teens who can learn a bit more deeply about these ideas. Imagine in the future, the future entrepreneurs, leaders, influencers, elected officials who read the Tuttle Twins books when they were young. I mean, look at Argentina. We've got the Javier Malay, um, you know, fascinating guy, this, this Austrian economist, uh, libertarian guy who, depending on election shenanigans, may or may not win here. Uh, but, but can we produce future people like that if we invest in the rising generation and help parents talk to their kids when they're even younger. That's ultimately the goal that we're after. So if you continue aging up as your audience gets older, then in a decade or so, we can expect total twins for adults, right? <laughs> I would argue we already have it well. <laughs> because most adults, you know, when, when I get asked for like our picture books, so here's uh, the one we were re- referencing earlier, the, the creature from Jekyll Island, you know, totally uh, picture based. Elijah does an amazing job. And historically, when I've been asked, uh, what ages are these these books for? I say, well, age five to 11 and members of Congress. So, uh, you know, adults can benefit from these just about as well the same as level kids. of reading comprehension, I would argue. Exactly. There you go. Um, well, hey, I can attest my children know what the creature from Jekyll Island is. And it's because of the Tuttle Twins. So thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Quick story on that, if I may, James, a a dad uh, messaged me recently. He's in the car. His kids are in the back. They're listening to I think it was NPR, something on the radio. And uh, and the, the talking heads were discussing inflation. Why is inflation happening? Why is it so high? And one of them said, well, I'll tell you why it's so high. It's because all these Beyonce and Taylor Swift concerts are selling out. The tickets are crazy expensive. Everyone's spending all this money and it's heating up the economy. And the nine-year-old daughter chimes in from the back seat and says, that's a lie. It's because the Federal Reserve is printing a bunch of money. <laughs> and so the dad turns the radio off, was able to have a meaningful conversation, not only about the Federal Reserve and inflation, because he he had read the book with his daughter. He knew the, the lingo and the history. But also he was able to help her understand, hey, not everything you hear from an expert Right. Because I think that person was an economist or something, but not everything you hear on the media, not everything you hear from an expert is uh, is accurate. Amazing opportunity with his daughter to tie that in and help her understand you're right. And most people are wrong. And you're growing up in a world where people will be very confident in claiming things that simply are not true. And so you need to develop a kind of a BS detector to realize, like, yeah, you know, that that does not comport with what I've learned and and that's all the more reason why we as parents, I think, 
need to give our children a foundation of truth. We need to, in age-appropriate ways, help them learn at a younger age before they get exposed to all these deceptions so that they can evaluate these claims and these ideas they hear in contrast with the foundation that they've been given. Too many kids are sent out in the world, tabula rasa, blank slate, uh, sponge to just soak up, you know, whatever social justice crusade that their friends or friends are doing. So mine is a call to action for parents to say, we need to be intentional with our kids and we need to compete for their hearts and minds because they're being assaulted. You'll, you'll appreciate James. In fact, I should reach out to you once I have it done just this weekend. I finished writing the manuscript for a new book, general audience for adults called mind wars. And, uh, and it documents all the examples in which like we are in a psychological battlefield you as a parent, how, how old is your oldest now, James? So my boy Can is 10 and my girl is seven. Okay, so young like mine, a little younger than mine. Let's fast forward a decade and a half and imagine there's some war and your children and mine are drafted into whatever horrible military conflict is happening. Like me, you would probably help them resist and evade that draft. But let's say they end up getting sent to battle. We would not tolerate in any fashion our adult children going to some Middle Eastern far-flung country to fight, if they didn't, at a minimum, have body armor, uh, have a weapon, knowledge of the enemy, uh, rules of engagement, you know, defensive uh, uh, supplies and, and tactics and training, we, we would never think to send uh, any adult to a theater of war without these basic supplies. And yet I contend that too many of us parents are sending our children out into psychological battle, the, this, this battlefield, without empowering them with armor, with weaponry, with knowledge of the enemy. Obviously, in age-appropriate ways, but still, our children, just like us adults, their minds are ground zero for this conflict. And there are people, you know, certainly the John Deweys and Horace Manns and others of uh, ancient history, but modern history as well, who see our children as raw material for their agenda, for their system, for fodder for whatever machine they're trying to build. And if we don't want that for our kids, we have to be, I think, very intentional in giving our children that armor, that weaponry, that knowledge, so that as they go out into the world, they can see through the BS, they can see through the deceptions, they can be an ambassador for truth with their friends and, and persuade their friends, like, no, don't listen to that teacher. They're totally wrong, right? The Gadsden flag is not about slavery. Hey, let me teach you some true American history. We want our kids to not be recipients of deception and, and brainwash. We want them to be actors, I think, for truth and to spread light. And, uh, and, and so that's my call to action for parents. Let's be more intentional. Let's recognize the world we're sending our kids out into. And let's make sure we're fortifying them in an age-appropriate way so that not only will they not be a casualty in the mind war, but they can actually, you know, achieve some victories and help other people along the way. Excellent. Well, that's what it's about. And we will be directing people to TuttleTwins.com, where obviously all of these books are available. Are there any other resources you'd like to direct people to today? Uh, for the book in particular, if you want to go straight there, that one is TuttleTwins.com slash conspiracies, plural, conspiracies. Uh, but yeah, TuttleTwins.com or finding us on social media at TuttleTwins is a great place to go. Excellent. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback from the audience, as I'm sure you are as well, about uh, this book. I and am. hopefully unlocking some young young minds with this information. On that note, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Connor Boyack, thank you again for your time. Thanks, James. Appreciate it.